0: Love that intro <laughs> hi everybody welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the matt brown show and welcome to the built-in texas series uh we've got a great founder on the line today her name is summer babarek did i do a good job with that her name
1: nailed it <laughs> Mm, yes,
0: off to a flying start. Cool. So you guys are doing some amazing things. Uh, you're a former VC. You've, uh, you've been around the block more than once and you're solving a really hard problem um, in, in endometriosi's diagnosis. So let's talk about all of this. Uh, but uh, let's maybe start with a bit about you and your background. Um, and then, you know, if you would, uh, Sam, uh, just, you know, give us a bit about the origin story. Kick us off.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk about Hera and our work. Um, So my background is a bit unorthodox. I guess it's fitting being that um, you're in the Founded in Texas series. But prior to being in VC and all of that, I used to actually rodeo professionally, which is a little fun fact about me. (laughs) that People don't know. Um, And then when I was in college, round two, because the first time I left to go rodeo professionally, um, I actually fell in love with women's health. I was in um, an entrepreneurship program. I got my undergrad in entrepreneurship and invented a medical device in women's health. And that's really where my passion for women's health came from and got picked up by a VC fund in uh, San Antonio, Texas, worked for them for almost 10 years, uh, conducting diligence on companies seeking funding helping the partners make investment decisions and orienting companies um, as to what it means to take VC money. I also worked in a couple of the fund companies, got those, uh, they were in drug development, got those through end of phase two before they were acquired. And at that point, it really felt like a natural time to decide what the next chapter was. And I really wanted to get back into women's health. And that's when I went about deciding I needed to find a technology to build a company around in women's health. Did kind of the normal thing, looked at a bunch of Ivy League, brilliant colleges, and saw that there was a lot of innovation happening in the drug space. But when you dig in, a lot of it was around symptom control and not really around modifying the disease, which kind of was a light bulb moment for me. We don't understand these diseases very well. Very few of them have robust diagnostics. So I decided to look into diagnostics and was lucky enough to find one at the University of Texas Health Science Center here in San Antonio fell in love with the science. The co-inventors of the technology were just brilliant and lovely, which is rare to have that combination. Um, And so Hera was born after I completed my diligence on the technology.
0: Fantastic. Um, So... Uh, I'd love for you just to uh, maybe double click on the problem for us. Like really, let's talk about the problem and land that. And while you were talking, um, one of the interesting stats I came across, I Googled, because, uh, you know, I just don't know, <laughs> but I Googled okay. like the number of women affected by endometriosis and I couldn't believe the number, but it's basically roughly 10% or 190 million women um mm-hmm. of re- of reproductive age, women and girls globally, like that's a massive a number of women that's affected by this. It's
1: huge, I think, and I'm gonna get this stat wrong, but I think if you put all of those women into one place, it would be like the twelfth largest country in the world. It's crazy, um yes, yeah, so it is a big problem. It's very, very prevalent. um the prevalence is on par with diabetes. And yet it receives a fraction of the funding that diabetes receives. Um, What we believe is the biggest problem with endometriosis right now, because there's a lot of them, we don't have any effective treatments other than surgery to either excise or ablate, meaning burn or cut out the lesions that occur, which are little tumor-like growths that can happen anywhere in the abdominal cavity, right? And so one of the ways that we frame this to people is imagine if a woman wasn't having her period just in her uterus, she's having it all over her body. That's essentially what these women are dealing with, because despite the fact that this tissue is no longer on the inside of the uterus, it behaves very similarly. It swells, it breaks down, it bleeds, and this causes just havoc in a woman's body. Um, And in the US, it takes an average of eight years for a woman to receive her diagnosis, which is just... I mean, I can't imagine going eight years with all of those symptoms and having no answer for why I'm enduring all of this discomfort and pain, quite frankly. Um, So, yes, it's the number one cause of female infertility, the leading cause of hysterectomies for women in their 30s. Big, big problems. And we think one of the biggest reasons that we have all of these problems, including the no effective therapeutic treatments, is that we don't have a good way of diagnosing it. The only way to diagnose it is to cut somebody open, see if you can see the disease. It's extremely um, heterogeneous in presentation. These little growths can be black, brown, blue, purple, powder burn. I mean, we've given surgeons an impossible job. So-
0: That's what we're working on. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's a great problem that someone So I love doing these startups uh, or this particular series around startups. Interestingly, as a weird observation, I think I mentioned this to you when I met you last week, but um, there's a lot of like biotech, health tech, uh, you know, uh, innovation specifically weirdly enough from, from Texas. I don't know if it's weird or not, <laughs> but it's like, hang on. Why is that not like happening in California or New York? You know what I mean? Like what, what's going on there? What do you think? It, why is there so much innovation in Texas specifically in the healthcare space?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that we've always had quite a bit of innovation happening here. It's just that we're not as flashy and we haven't gotten as much attention as the coast, right? The coasts have been doing this for years and years and years. Um, And I think that Texas institutions, are really finally getting their arms around how do we take this great research that we're conducting at our institutions and get it out there where it can be translational? So I think we're a little bit new to the translational science party, um, but we've always been very, very deep um, in our bench strength and research. I mean, few people know this. I find that really interesting, but Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. Yes, we have medical innovation. <laughs> I think it's funny that people are like, wait, are you sure? yeah pretty sure
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. well yeah I mean I went to austin initially when I am when I moved to the states and um and then I was d- looking at the University of Texas there's like seventy thousand students there
1: <laughs> yes, it's pretty big
0: <laughs> it's unreal it's absolutely unreal uh, but coming back to Hero biotech here I mean what would you say I mean I, I know it's a kind of an maybe it's a oxymoron of a sort of a question, but you know it's kind of like I want to ask you like what's the market opportunity that you're going after do you know what I mean? or value because it's kind of like i know that we're actually just trying to help 190 women <laughs> a million women does it make sense um and so it might right. be like a weird kind of uh, question but uh, i need to ask you that yeah. like what is the opportunity in terms of dollar value that you feel uh hero biotech is is going to go after
1: sure so it's estimated to be nine billion dollars Um, And the largest portion of that is in OBGYN practices. And then the remainder of that is in fertility intervention clinics um, or with reproductive endocrinologists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, it's a massive market.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's huge. And the other thing I wanted to touch on was this uh, misdiagnosis uh, problem because, and this is an important thing to land for everyone because it's going to talk to like how you guys are actually solving it. And when I spoke to you last week for the first time, we touched on fibromyalgia right so also oftentimes yeah. mis- misdiagnosed and i was sharing you how my uncle steve uh steve brown bless him, like i mean like it's such a horrible affliction fibromyalgia it's it's it's, it's insane um so um so to, to, so two things here one why is there such a massive amount of misdiagnosis and i'd love for you to introduce how you guys are actually starting to solve this problem
1: sure absolutely so i think one of the biggest issues Um, in terms of misdiagnosis is we don't have a direct correlation between the symptoms of endometriosis and the disease itself. So some of the symptoms are pretty nonspecific and might actually direct you away from the disease itself. So women that have endometriosis, painful menstrual cycles are a hallmark. Heavy bleeding is a hallmark. There's a number of different things that can cause those problems. Um, Bowel disruption, painful sex, those are also hallmark characteristics of endometriosis. A number of other conditions can cause those. So there isn't a single symptom that is specific to endometriosis that you wouldn't get with some other indication as well. And so I think that's, that's really a big problem. The other part of this is disease, or I'm sorry, symptom severity. So if she's extremely, extremely painful, very, very heavy bleeding, lots of bowel disruption, that doesn't mean that she has severe disease she could be considered a stage one or early stage endometriosis patient. So there's no correlation between symptom severity and the disease stage, which really leaves doctors kind of just grasping at straws and doing diagnosis by elimination. And other things are easier to eliminate than putting this uh, patient through a surgery. So that's where they go. Um, And so what Hera is doing is simplifying that process. We're taking the diagnosis out of the operating room and putting it into the doctor's office, which is where we believe it belongs. Um, And so the way that we conduct our test is we take a sample of the lining of the uterus. It's a very common procedure that's done in OB-GYN practices. And we analyze that tissue for a gene set that is well known to cause invasive behavior in cells, which is exactly what is required for those lesions to form in the first place. And there seems to be a correlation between those expression levels and the severity of the disease, which is how we get our staging. So very simply, that's how we're doing it. I don't know how technical you want me to get. Happy to dig in, but.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe um, I'd love, I mean, what I want to get into with you is like R&D, because to do something like this, it's not like you wake up one morning and you hire a developer <laughs> and, yeah, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that um so i mean how, what's your strategy around r&d and i know it's critical strategically but i'd love for you to unpack like the the role of r&d in solving an endometriosis crisis like the one that you guys are solving
1: Sure. Well, I think like most um, inventors, uh, our two co-inventors, we have Bruce and Namir, Dr. Nicholson and Dr. Kirma, kind of serendipitously came together, and it was their diversity and background that I think really led to this discovery. So, um, Bruce, Dr. Nicholson, is his whole background is in cell biology and structural biology. He was the first to discover the proteins that we're looking at, and he's been looking at them for over 40 years, studying their role in mediating invasive cell behavior. He was giving a presentation about that to Dr. Kirma's department in molecular medicine. And Dr. Kirma has a background in OBGYN and specifically female reproductive oncology. He's always had a passion for endometriosis because of the similarities between oncology and endometriosis. And when Dr. Nicholson was giving his presentation, one of the things he said was really the place where this gene set falls down, which these are gap junction genes, is they don't really have anything to do with unregulated growth of cells. So that's really where they fall down in oncology. And that was a light bulb moment for Namir because he thought, well, that's when endometriosis stops being cancer. It doesn't grow at an unregulated rate. So they came together, looked at the literature, and realized these two worlds really hadn't come together to look at this. And so that began them on their journey to develop the technology that Harris Test is based on. And as we move forward, you know, with this gene set playing such a critical role, not only in invasive processes, but also in the process of fertility, it really opens pandora's box for us to go after a lot of indications that are non-malignant invasive disorders of the female reproductive tract which is a big pain point right now
0: mm-hmm. so uh, coming back to that nine billion dollar opportunity what would you say you know you as a team and i have recognizing your industry is very regulated fda approvals things like this um but to secure that market opportunity What challenges do you feel you guys need to overcome as a a team and as a business to ultimately capture the value of that market opportunity?
1: Sure. Well, I think um, really similarly to any other life science company, we've got to prove um, our sensitivity and specificity of our tests we're looking really, really good. Um, and so that's very exciting, but that's early days. And so we'll have to go through the clinical trials just like everybody else. And beyond that, we'll have to prove clinical utility. I mean, doctors get accustomed to doing things certain ways and changing that is always difficult. So there will be an education process and saying, wait, instead of referring her out, instead of doing these other things that you've been doing to get this you know, problem off your list, do this one more thing just to make sure. And so that'll be an education process and and getting that access will be important to us.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the things uh, you were sharing with me is some you actually, as a seed stage company in life sciences, you actually have pilot data available, which is like a complete rarity in and of itself, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So as you and I were chatting about that, it just it was kind of occurring to me at that moment. When I was in VC, we were an early stage life science VC. And oftentimes we saw a lot of companies that did not have inhuman human data. That's very rare because of the regulated environment. We've actually accumulated in human pilot data. And so we're very excited to have that and be able to share that with potential investors. It's it's a, a unique position for us.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Sticking with the investor uh, story for a moment, you obviously, as you mentioned a few times now, um, have done VC investing yourself. I'd love for us just to change the conversation a little bit and actually talk about this idea of the funding gap. Uh, for mm-hmm. uh, for women's health, you know, um, and also I'd love for us to maybe even just spend a few uh, a bit more time here around like talking about the the amount of capital that's going to women-led startups versus men-led startups because I think this is a really important conversation for us to have for for a number of reasons. Um, but my question though is, let's talk about this funding gap for women's health. Why is this such an issue? Stay with us. We'll be right back. all the knowledge capital that's been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show and you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers.
1: Sure. So I think that's a lot to unpack. We could probably do a whole show on that, but Agreed. briefly. <laughs> but briefly, I think that um, when you talk about, you know, traditional venture capital, and and you know, this, I feel like this is kind of beating a dead horse. But we all know that traditional VC has been run by males. It hasn't always included female perspective. So that shift and that recognizing that female perspective is important for performance of portfolios. Um, is relatively new and so what you've got is maybe some females being incorporated there um, but not leading and so you've now got this kind of break off faction if you will of female-led funds but these are all new funds and new funds have very specific mandates that they have to go after and maybe they are supporting female founders or they're looking at women's health and wellness but they also need quick returns so they're motivated to invest in things that are not going to be on a long regulatory journey are not going to take a long time to provide a return to LPs because these early funds need returns quickly. So they can raise the next fund, grow the fund, et cetera, et cetera. They've got to get themselves to the same stage as these traditional life science VCs or any other VC really. Mm. Um, And then, you know, the life science venture capital community that's traditional has not traditionally invested in women's health unless you want to add the caveat of oncology, which technically, yes, that is women's health, especially breast cancer, and they will invest in that. But when it comes to hard science innovations in women's health today, there's a gap there for where those companies go for funding. Um, And so I think a lot of companies, like with the rise of Femtech, get pushed into that how do we go direct to consumer? How do we alleviate all this timeline that actually is what you have to have to make a big difference in the industry of women's health um, so that you can get funding?
0: Yeah, uh, I actually pulled up some stats um, summer around the from PitchBook around the distribution of capital to f- a female co-founded Uh, startups and and like the the numbers don't lie right (laughs) it's like it's like i think the the number here is like six percent of total capital it goes to like women led founders like maybe it's because that like i don't know there's like a 94 percent you know like mainly men led i don't know like who knows what that is um but it's definitely but it is improving from the data um it like it hasn't it is improving potentially maybe not as much as we um you know could hope for um but um i guess maybe sticking with this deep tech or hard science innovations narrative in women's health what have you um learned about solving a hard science problem's a hard science problem rather, uh, in the life sciences category as a uh, hero biotech. Like what if, is something surprised you? Is there something that you came across that was like, ah, oh, I didn't expect this. What does that look like?
1: Sure. And I think it goes back to that VC, right? Mentality that I had coming in. I thought, oh, well, we're perfect for early stage VCs. And we would be such a catch because we have inhuman data. And I've, banged my head against the wall, pitching to VCs. And, and I had to learn the hard way, really. Oh, I, while I have patient data, don't have sufficient traction for women's health VCs, because they expect more from you. And the traditional life science VCs, where I would have sufficient traction, aren't interested in investing in women's health. So where do I go now? Um, And that taught me a lot about angel investors, which I did not know very much about, admittedly, and I had to go and find them. And that was a really interesting learning experience. And I have really relished a lot of the lessons that I've learned about the difference in pitching the VCs versus angels and working with those two different types of investors. It's been really educational.
0: (laughs) So let's let's unpack that then. I mean, what are some of the obvious differences? I mean, just to maybe share one quick story. Like in South Africa, there was this friend of mine, Benji. She founded a startup years ago, like called Empty Trips. when she was on the stage at the World Cup of Startups in Silicon Valley and she came like fourth or whatever. Um, and you know, and she was basically a woman led founder, right? Um, and she wasn't doing like life sciences or anything like that. Um, but uh she she had this funny thing. She said, you know here's the irony about venture capitalists. They don't really venture. And she was saying that in the context of like Africa. But what I'm hearing is in also true in a developed market like the US, in the context like you've just described, right? Like women-led life sciences or what have you. Um, so what are some of those immediate differences? Like the difference between pitching to a VC and an angel? Do you change the way you pitch? Uh, what, what have you learned about, uh, about doing that particular investment strategy?
1: Sure. So with my experience in VC is a lot of VCs will kind of give you that whatever you're presenting them is an awful problem. You wouldn't be here if this wasn't an awful problem. We understand whatever patient population you're dealing with is dealing with something tragic and hard and difficult. And you don't spend a lot of time talking about that because they don't really care. They understand it's a big problem. There are lots of big problems in healthcare. We're interested in which are the biggest problems that are going to give us the biggest return um, in terms of VCs. And I don't mean to make them sound callous, but that's just been my experience with it. It's more on the business side of things and the logistics of getting it to market and getting a return. Angels, while they want to make a return, really care about the story. They want to hear a good story. They want to hear all about the patient. What is the pain point? How exactly is this pain point making, you know, big issues in this patient's life? And so I had a very impersonal pitch for angels, which led them to feel like I didn't really have a problem. And it wasn't until we started talking about patients and their experience in the healthcare system that angels started caring about our solution. Whereas VCs care about our solution because it's novel and interesting and unique and has the potential to make a lot of money. And they just give us the fact that, yes, patients are suffering and that's awful like so it it was a very different um trying to stand up there because i'd be, i'd been training myself right okay as a woman i'm going to keep it together i'm going to be very professional maybe very man like this is not going to be about an emotional story mm. no it needs to be about an emotional story now and i'm like crap
0: <laughs> yeah well um, so. it's interesting right because i mean like every every single startup i i have on the show um is is in a raise you know like it's, it's a certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting. Obviously, like you get different types of of capital, right? There's angel, there's mm-hmm. crowdfunding, there's venture capital, there's PE and so on. And I think it's really interesting because I, th- I find like a lot of uh, startups, they're over-indexed towards venture capital. And I know why, um, but they're not looking at like, well, what's some of the low-hanging fruit here, especially now, right? Because if the macroeconomics are the way that they are, wouldn't it make sense to work on a story two angels to get you the same results. I mean, it depends right. on where you are. imagine like if you're doing like seed is very different to like series D, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. D- different types of money. Right. But like, if you just right. want to, like I got a client in New York and they just want to raise a million dollars. It's like, well, you know, like, you know, that's not venture capital money. That's, that's like a coffee with a high net worth right. dude who just likes your story.
1: Right. Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about, um, and I I totally understand and appreciate what you're saying. It's like, if you're raising, I I mean, and I think the numbers are shifting, right? Like it used to be, if you're raising a million rounds, that's that's an angel round. And then anything above that is something different. Um, Now, I think angel rounds is probably 5 million and below. Um, I do think that high net worth investors who may be LPs in some of these venture funds are saying you know i kind of want to get in here and do this too um and they're capable of writing big enough checks um that you don't have to have 150 people on your cap table to get to three million dollars you know in funding
0: exactly exactly so i mean what is you what uh, so let's for uh, for the my client let's just say we'll have to use yeah. i'm not going to mention that is but <laughs> uh, that's okay. but, but, <laughs> but uh, let's just say like a guy out there a girl out there they want to raise a million dollars right Um, and they're like no no we're not quite venture capital yet we want to go to the angel network where do you start like how do you access angels
1: sure um well this was a good learning and i'm happy to share because i hope everybody's journey to find angels is more efficient than mine was um i literally just started applying for every pitch competition i could find because Hmm. i didn't know where to find angels but i figured that they would be going to pitch competitions um and so through that, several of the pitch competitions that I expressed interest in said, okay, you have to go build a profile on Gust or Proceder or there's a number of different platforms. And then you'll submit that to us and we'll review your profile and that's how we're selecting our finalists. And when I was on there creating this profile, I realized, oh wait, this isn't just like a way to do applications for pitch competitions there are all these angel groups that source deals through these platforms. And you can actually just share it with them or ask them if they want to view your deal. And so then I was like the worst insurance agent salesperson ever. because I was just like, anybody that accepted open app, you know, like, invites to profiles, I was, you know, invite me to your monthly pitch competition. Yeah, just Send them off, you know, um, invite me to your monthly pitch competitions. I'd love to pitch for your angels, you know, this, 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 and this. Um, and so that's how we got started. And then it was, oh, have you pitched to this angel network? Oh, well, we, we do deals sometimes with this other angel network over here. And that's one of the other things about angels that I love. They are not afraid to make some introductions. <laughs> like, right. and They may not even know the person. No, they'll be like, oh, I linked and connected with this guy who's with a family office. I'm going to connect you. And you're like, oh, wow, great. I didn't even have to do some like crazy thing to get you to try to help me. That's amazing.
0: Mm -hmm. I know, great, exactly. Um, And I just wanna stick with the story piece because I think that's quite quite an interesting angle to it, isn't it? Because it's kind of like you went in there with a, with let's just say maybe a story that hadn't quite been thought through because you didn't feel like you needed to um and then you changed all of that um what's your advice from a story selling perspective right because that's kind of like for you know if you take the idea of principle of storytelling everyone's hardwired yeah. for it you put it into businesses well you're actually story selling right so um, right. um and this is something i'm a big proponents of even the way that I structure the show, this particular, all the shows that I do, it's, it's, it's designed to get an idea across for someone to take action. So, um, what have you learned about story selling or storytelling in your case? Um, you know, uh, hero biotech, like what did you change, uh, about it that made it work?
1: Sure. So I started putting it in terms that people could understand, When you say 190 million women worldwide have endometriosis, that sounds like this big abstract number out there that's happening that you're like, wow, for VC, they're immediately like, that's a huge market. Okay. But for an angel, they're like, how in the world are you ever going to talk to all those people? Like, where are all those? You don't even know where all those people are. And so it was drilling it down into that person's everyday. Hey, if you have five women in your life, it's really likely that one of them is silently suffering with this and you have no idea because she's hiding it. Um, If you have an employee that's female that misses 11 days of work a month, it's quite possible that she has endo and she can't come to work because she's incapable of it. Um, Imagine your wife, your daughter, your partner not able to do 25 to 30% of her at home things that she normally does. That's what women with Indo deal with. Can you imagine dealing with that if you have children? Like, yeah. so putting it into something that they could really experience as part of the story versus telling a story about these huge numbers that aren't personal to them. Um, that was my learning and I'm still learning how to do it. I'm not great at it yet. Um, but I'm working on it.
0: Just working on my farm. Um, That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually Googled uh, just to paint this this particular conversation in perspective here. So uh, let me bring it up on screen for everyone. So, the total amount of angel investments in 2021 was just under $30 billion. That's an increase, just FYI, over 50 of uh, 15.2% over the year before. A total of 69,000 entrepreneurial ventures received angel funding in 2021. That's an increase of 7%. And the number of active investors in 2020, 2021 also increased to 363,000 compared to like 338,000 the year before, which is an increase of 8%. Um, that's like an amazing thing. And I think what's probably driving that, and maybe we could spend a, a minute or two here is is like, the fact that I know like another stat I read recently, I think it was from PitchBook, but it was like the total amount of venture capital going into startups has come down year and year by 34% or something like that. So it mm-hmm. seems to me like, well, hang on, if that's the case and the liquidity is not there anymore, like let's look at this angel network, right? And I think that could be why we're seeing numbers of $29.1 billion from angel investors specifically going into startups. What's your view? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And I think I don't know the statistics, it would be really interesting to look my master's is in data analytics. So I would really like to have this. data. Um, but I would venture a guess that angel investment into female led startups is statistically significantly better than VC, which is crazy. Because if you think about it, VCs are supposed to operate on like imperial statistics, like a lot of its gut, like you're investing in what you think is going to work. But there's a lot of number crunching that goes into VC investing. However, startup teams with a female founder on the team perform 66% better than their all male counterparts. So, why aren't you funding them more? You know, it's crazy. And I think that I have heard that stuff more often from angel investors than I've heard from anyone else. So, I think angel investors have a passion factor that you don't get on the institutional investor side. I think you see it a lot in family offices too. There's these, mm. these people who are very, very passionate. Um, and so they want to do the work and they want to apply some metric to how they're investing. They want to be intentional with their investments. And so I think that they do a lot more deep digging than you know some of your big institutional investors.
0: Mm. So here's the thing, okay? (laughs) So I know, I (laughs) I I know, right? God, if only, if only it was true. But uh, this is an article in Forbes. Okay, so share of angel funding for female startup CEOs drops despite a surge in dollars in 2021. And they're going to say, yeah. uh, it's just sad, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. Angel backed startups yeah. have more female CEOs. What well, this, what you said is true, though. Angel backed startups have more female CEOs than the Fortune 500, double actually, and the S and P 500, uh, it's like triple. It's interesting that they say like the bad news of female CEOs are losing ground in the angel investing space. It's weird, man. Doesn't make sense, does it?
1: Mm-mm. No, it doesn't. Um, but you know, I have to say, I'm. I'm rarely surprised by bad stats about funding for female founders these days. Listen. Um, I, I, especially when you layer in women's health. It's like... I know. Wah, but, wah.
0: but you know, like with headlines like this, it's like I could find, if I spent another 10 minutes, I could find another three articles all saying something different. Do you know what I mean? Right. Citing citing other sources, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I was with you, angels. I was trying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> step up guys um, come on here we go so
1: everybody step up
0: <laughs> yeah exactly um so so what was your thinking around how much to raise for because i think that's also an interesting run right it's like oh i can i could do a million now but maybe you know t- five million in six months like how do you in, for, as a ceo woman led founder what do you think how do you approach deciding like how much to raise
1: so you know, for us, it was what are some of the easiest achievable milestones that are least expensive to get to that would increase our valuation. Um, so maybe I'm a fembot, or maybe I'm not a traditional female, but I'm all about retaining the value of the company. Um, and so for me, when I, I have the luxury and the pleasure of working with a lot of female CEOs who come to me because they're like, oh, you have a background in VC. I want some help with financials or modeling or whatever. And so what I found was in doing that and talking to all those women, a lot of female CEOs have these really, really messy rounds. Like I raised $100,000 at a $250,000 valuation, like all of these little piecemeal things and it was one of the driving factors behind me saying for Hera, we're not doing that. And, and it, I think, contributes to the problem of female CEOs, investors saying, oh, I can get a good deal. I can get a good deal on women's health right now because there's not a lot of funders. And they have that like white knight syndrome, which we experienced a couple of times. And I made some dudes really mad by saying no to money. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think what you have to do is think, okay, What are the achievable milestones? What is it going to cost to do that? And really do your homework on it. Go get the quotes. Don't estimate it. And whenever you get the quotes, double it. And that's what you should raise for. Um, And so we were originally going out looking for a million. And lo and behold, you know, inflation starts to spike and things go up. We raised $2 and we're okay. We're we're still going to get to the milestones um, that we said we were going to get to because it was double what we thought we needed. Mm. And so that's kind of, I think, a general rule of thumb. I don't think any investor, I certainly didn't when I was looking at deals, is going to harshly question a cushion. Absolutely have a cushion in there and and say it, you know, we've built in 20% cushion, because we know some of the costs are going to change. We know things aren't going to go the way we have planned exactly. And so we're still going to be okay with this raise to do what we said we're going to do.
0: Mm -hmm. so you you mentioned valuation I've been asking this question consistently so I'll ask it to you also but you know how caught up should you be on valuation in this process of raising money in the markets the way that it is
1: sure I think oh that's such a personal decision um so for us I didn't want to price Hera in our first round so we raised on a convertible note so that we didn't have a priced round for our seed. Because I knew that the milestones that we had laid out for our seed money would get us to a really solid valuation going into the series A. And so that's how I structured it so that I felt like I could, A, take care of my first round investors by putting a cap on that and raising what I thought would be a solid A. Um, I think that at the end of the day, you can do whatever you want to do. You can model however you want to model. You can find all the comps you want. The market's going to tell you what you're worth. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter. You can sit there and argue with somebody. And if they say, I'm I'm not going to invest unless the valuation's X, I, I mean, you can try to keep finding somebody that's your choice. And so I think the best advice is to, again, do your homework, look at the comps, look at what else has been done, have, um, you know, have some consultants help you put that together so that you have a solid packet that you can justify when you go out with a valuation.
0: Agree. The market will always price you accordingly, right? It doesn't matter (laughs) whether it's personal or not. It's like the market's going to (laughs) decide. Right. (laughs) Uh, Hence, jasper.ai. I mean, I mean, (laughs) really? One and a half billion? Come on, man.
1: Well, how about, how about WeWork 2.0? Oh
0: my God. What the hell? I can't. Dude? Like, no, I no,
1: no. really can't. Like, I shorted out for a good week over that. I was like,
0: wait. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Uh, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, so, sure. so let's. Let's. I mean, you're obviously a visionary, and you care deeply about this problem that you guys are solving. Mm-hmm. What is the ultimate contribution or difference that you hope to make? Uh, you know, as um, a consequence.
1: Honestly, I want getting an endometriosis diagnosis to be as easy as a Pap smear, um, and I I make that comparison a lot when I'm thinking about the impact that we have the potential to make. It's very akin to the difference that the pap smear made like we knew cervical cancer was bad we knew it was killing people we didn't have a reliable way to tell who was having it and who wasn't we were having to cut people open and look at cervixes and you know all of these things and then along comes the pap smear and look at everything that we have learned about cervical cancer as a result of the pap smear we now can detect very minute cellular changes that tells us whether or not you're likely, and we can take those cells out and then reduce the impact or reduce the likelihood. We now know that most of that comes from a virus, which we now have a vaccine for. Like, you know, there's just all of this information that all came from having a robust way to diagnose something. I think that Hera has the potential to make a piece of that impact in endometriosis. I mean, just from the standpoint of being able to track progression of the disease, there is no progression data available today about endometriosis. The biobank that exists for our gene set, we have it. (laughs) No one else has that. So, um, you know, and we were just on a call the other day with the team and my genomics guy, (laughs) Namir, was like, we have so much data to mine, you know? And so he and I are going on and on about data and and Bruce and and my other co-founder, Paul, who was my former boss at VC was like, hey guys, we're gonna need you to reel it back in now and let's talk about the business. (laughs) So um, I just think that we have a really, um, we have such a responsibility to this patient set to make the biggest impact that we can on getting meaningful ways to track progress understand the disease so that we have better ways to treat it and mitigate the progress and make diagnosis not eight years long, make it quick and intervene quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, I really hope you 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 solve this problem for as many women as possible. Like I mean that sincerely, and I think like startups, if based on what you're saying, also like the fact that you, you like where's the, we have it, we have the data, like no one else has is it. ridiculous, right? You would think it's 2022, you know, for fuck's sake,s. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the <laughs> exactly. so, so the fact that you have it, like, it's crazy, right? So it seems to me that you're creating the market for this, um, and it also means that. Uh, well, my experience is it can take longer because you're making the mm-hmm. market. um and okay. in many cases, it can require more capital. Either way, mm-hmm. suppose you come over those uh, overcome those two things, which I have no doubt you will, you're going to reach some level of scale, right? Um and mm-hmm. in the in the healthcare space specifically, I'm always curious about you know scaling with the idea of like scaling responsibly because it's not like you're running a SaaS company. Do you know what I mean? Like when you right. put put like a hundred million dollars there, you get three hundred million dollars out on the other side. And it's not the same thing. Um, so right. two so two things I'd love for you to unpack for for us is um, how do you how do you scale something like yeah. here to get to the hundred and ninety million to access these women, right. and what do you, what is your um, your idea around scaling responsibly? Mm -hmm. you know because if you put it because if you put it in the dirt like you don't reach the 190 million like you don't make the difference right
1: right exactly um so i think when you talk about scaling responsibly one of the things that that just brings to the forefront is we're doing single cell microfluidic analysis on two separate cell types This is not something that you just, like you said, bang out. It's like, oh, take a blood sample, run it through this thing where we have these markers, we know what they look like. And there's these billions of samples and biobanks that we can run it through. No, um, we're not that. And so I think that scaling responsibly means continuing our research with the purest form of the test and the purest form of the sample and committing to the R&D to work our way towards the least invasive and the least, um, let's say technical way to conduct this test without compromising sensitivity and specificity of the test. And that takes a commitment because that will take dollars in R&D, but I think that's the responsible way to do it. I think it also means partnering with our weak spot, if you will. Care is not making machines that do this. We're not creating platforms that can run these sorts of assays efficiently. So we need partners who are. And then we can work together to make that platform as efficient as possible, get our least you know, technical and least um, invasive way to conduct this test and utilize that combination to get it as big and as fast as possible to as many people as possible, because that will inevitably bring the cost down as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. so I think that's really critical. Honestly, yeah. mm-hmm. um, that's the second part of the question.
0: <laughs> well, w- the first part was like, well, the second part was scaling responsibly. But then it was more like in the healthcare space, like how do you scale? Like, let's say you did the oh, yeah. the sensitivity thing and you figured that out, oh, least, mm-hmm. yep. least invasive. You did all that. Yeah. Okay, now what? Cool. So let's say you've got that. You've got that scale ready, sure. whole solution, whole product idea, bedded, right, nailed. Now what? Like, how how do you get to the 190? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So I think it involves a lot of, um, when I was in college, one of my favorite things that one of my favorite professors, Dr. Anita Leffel, who's amazing, used to say was, as an entrepreneur, you have to make sure that you don't fall into the trap of being so concerned with keeping the whole grape that you lose the slice of the watermelon. And so... I love that analogy because I do think a lot of times in healthcare, people are like, but I have this thing and it's worth so much. And if I do everything, then I get to keep all of this. Yes. But if you partner with others who have the channels to access those places, um, you know, where you want to be, you don't get to keep this whole little grape, but you do get this nice big slice of a watermelon that is also quite rewarding and filling. And so I think that it has to do with being being humble, recognizing where you need help and finding good partners who can get us to those massive markets, massive hospital systems that have those established relationships that we don't have today.
0: It's a great point that because it's kind of like 100% of zero is still zero. You know, so, and I think, I think we often get caught up with this idea of like how much of it is enough you know what I mean? Like, if okay. you're so clear, like, it's a clearly defined market, you've got the product, you now you nail that, you get approvals, what have you. You now want to reach 190 million. So, there's option A, which is you do it yourself, that idea. Option B is you work with infrastructure, channels, and partnerships that can get you to 190 million quickly, right? So mm-hmm. that you can go and make the difference because something like that, I mean, if you're going after a $9 billion markets, I mean, uh, VCs, like, investors always like laugh at me. They're like, yeah, yeah. So, like a startup will come and they'll go, yeah, you know, the market's worth like a trillion dollars. And if we only get like 1% of that, we'll be worth a billion. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and there is such a bad like rhetorical perception, or at least that that creates, right? So, um, mm-hmm. and it's that same context, isn't it? It's about, listen, we just want to reach these women because like since 1925, like nothing's been done about it. Um, And so we want to do that. So, hey, Mr. Partner, you can help us get to uh, like uh, 20 million. That's better than reaching 2 million, spending your own money getting there. Do you know what I mean? To retain some sense of ownership.
1: Right. And I think, you know, maybe this is, um, I'm giving you obvious information, but I think that a lot of that happens to be where you're, you're, North star, if you will, lies as a company, what is your mission? It's not just making money. It's not just getting a return for your investors. Those are important things. And those have to be, you know, uh, considerations for you. But our mission is to make an impact for this patient population to better understand diseases so that we can come up with more Um, meaningful treatments by better understanding these disease with more diseases with more robust diagnostics. And so that doesn't happen with me saying, well, I've got 10,000 gyms in the US. Oh, wow. Great. Thank you. That's not, (laughs) that's not the impact we're looking for.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, So uh, let's uh, wrap this up, Summer. So uh, why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, Well, specifically, it's the patient population that we're serving for this particular problem. Um, And as it relates to endometriosis, but, and and hearing those patient stories. Um, But I am a woman who has experienced the healthcare system in the U.S. I have experienced many pain points. Um, I'm also a woman who's sat in VC and now been a founder and experienced the pain points with being a woman in those roles in society. And I am the mother of two girls. And I don't think that I would be able to look at myself in the mirror if I didn't think that I was moving the needle. Because if one of my children wants to pursue one of these paths, it has to be easier for her than it was for me. If one of these young female founders that I am so thankful that they feel that, that they need to reach out to me. I'm so blessed to be able to talk to them. If it's not easier for her than it was for me, then what am I really doing with my life? Not much, I don't think. Um, and all of those women will experience the healthcare system at some point. So we've got to make an impact there too. So mm. that's, that's what gets me
0: going. Well, I've got a baby girl and she's uh four and a half. So, you know, you go do your thing and you be, <laughs> go make it work. Thank you. Just get there. I will. okay? Get there. I can't imagine like anything bad happening to her or just her suffering period. So, you know, dads.
1: Oh, I do. My dad's like, I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm really proud of you. I'm like, thanks, dad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Dads are the best, right? Come on.
1: <laughs> oh, dads are the best, for sure.
0: <laughs> Especially when it comes to baby girls. Like, don't stand in the way. Watch your funny story? Your last, I've been watching this series. Oh, now I forget the name. Basically, it's based about a tech, Dillon, Texas football team. I don't know if you watched it. It's on Netflix. Um, Friday Night Lights or something Friday like Night. That. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Thank you very much. Terrible with Um, And uh, the, there's this scene where the daughter's like 15, and uh her boyfriend's also like he's the quarterback of the dylan football team mm-hmm. and then and then her mom sees the boyfriend buying condoms at the store and then she's like freaking out and so she she talks to the to the daughter because she doesn't want the dad to know and then one thing leaves another then she has to tell the dad and the expression on the dad's face <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was like
0: that guy's dead <laughs>
1: It wasn't pride that his daughter was practicing safe sex.
0: Uh, Yeah. No, mm -mm, no, no, (laughs) That's, that's a, that's a mother's role, dude. I'm telling you, but no. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I've
1: never been a dad, so I don't know. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. I'm the unofficial, um, baby daddy for my neighbor who went through IVF, um, and had twins. So I'm the unofficial dad.
0: I'm apparently
1: not good at it I didn't even remember I was a dad
0: (laughs) well congratulations well look Sam it's been a real privilege having you here and you know I really genuinely hope that you guys reach the kind of success that I know you guys are striving for so thank you for being here
1: thank you Matt for having me I really appreciate it
0: Anytime. thanks everybody ciao ciao